Welcome back to the 14th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex. Today, we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including pension plans bracing for a hurt to their private equity portfolios, Mansion pitches a new energy proposal, the Iranian protests have spurred discussion, and a story about how this selection might be a little bit different. And of course, we will end with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into the stories. Our first one comes from the Wall Street Journal. Pension plans are going to be hit hard in this next quarter. So if you don't know, pension plans, they are a large majority of where people who are retired keep their money. And this article in specific is speaking about public pension plans. So we're talking about the people that uh, were firefighters, police officers, anyone who served publicly in the public sphere. So worked for the government or was on the payroll of the government, essentially. So right now, these pension plans have nearly $5 trillion. That's $5 trillion of Americans' retirement savings. That's absolutely insane. $5 trillion. That's larger, and this is an cumulative number, just so we're clear. It goes across multiple pension plans. But that's more than some huge brokerage firms have under their management. So you need to keep this in mind. We're talking a large majority of pension plans here, and we're talking a large amount of funds as well. Over the last five years, we've kind of seen a diversification of the portfolio because the stock market, bond market, basically the secondary markets that pension funds would normally put their money into haven't been giving the returns that they would want in order to help these public servants with their retirement. So they've started to diversify into private equity, essentially putting money into startup companies or venture capital firms and using that as a way to grow their portfolio and the amount of money they have under management in order to help pay uh, for these retirement plans of some of the public servants. And this, you know, it seems like a great idea. We want to provide as much value to our customers as possible. We want to diversify. So we're going to start going into private equity. The one thing that you need to think about, though, is private equity, or in this case, investing in a company, a startup, is a very long-term outlook, meaning once you put that money in, it is very hard to get that money out until that company is sold on to somebody else uh, or it lists publicly and then you can get money back for the private equity that you put in. So this is an illiquid asset, meaning it is very hard in order to get money out of. So, you know, it's a great long-term plan, but if something happens like a economic downturn, perhaps, <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge, then you're kind of stuck with that money in the private equity firm. And now not only is there more risk because that firm that you have invested your money in could fail and therefore you lose a lot of your money, but also because it's illiquid, you have to evaluate it based on the value of the company. So if you put $2 trillion into 
let's say, Apples and Bread Company, and they're a startup, you can't just look at their stock price on the stock market and then multiply it by the amount of shares you have, and, oh, there, that's how much money I have tied up in Apple Bread. No, you have to go to the company, you have to get their financials, you have to understand how many assets they have, what their liabilities are, and normally third parties do this and they make assessments. But those assessments take a long time to identify the value of a company. So sometimes you have to wait until the end of the quarter to even have a good idea how much money you've lost. Meaning, oh, should we keep investing in private equity? That's a question that these pension plan managers may ask themselves. And they don't have a good idea of if they should keep investing in this private equity because they don't have a, uh, they don't have a measurement in that exact moment. It takes almost a quarter to fully realize whether they've made a gain or a loss. So that's why it's a little bit troubling that these pension plans have nearly one-fourth, one-fourth of their entire portfolio locked up in these private equity firms. And I think a quote that really explains and encapsulates everything I just said comes from this article in the Wall Street Journal. It says, quote, Public pensions have faced a funding crunch for years. Many have increasingly turned to private equity and other non-traditional investments over the past few years in hopes of plugging their shortfalls. When pension returns fall short of targets, typically around 7% annualized, the state and cities sponsoring those pension plans pay higher annual uh, retirement contributions to make up the difference. Sometimes they must raise taxes or cut services to find the extra money. Public pensions reported returning a median of 7.9% for the fiscal year that ended in June uh, 30th. Their worst losses since 2009, according to data from Wilshire Trust Universe Comparison Service published to the Wall Street Journal last month. So you can see that they are trying to plug up their shortfalls, like they mentioned, which is leading them to go for investments that are a little bit less traditional. And that that's, sounds fine. And it, Like I said before, it sounds like a great idea in theory to make sure that they retain the earnings for their uh, pensionees, the people that put their money into these retirement plans. But when they fall short, when they're not able to provide the amount of funds or the growth necessary to these retirees, the state has to come in and they have to pay the difference, or at least they choose to, which means that taxes are going up, which means that the prices of different goods are going to go up as well, meaning that at the end of the day, these people that are retirees, they're going to pay higher prices with that money that the government just gave them. So it doesn't really make a difference at the end of the day. They're going to feel the hurt either way. So you can see how this is a, a loop that can become perpetual and a problem that is starting to emerge now in this hard economic times. And we saw this in 2008 as well. A lot of pension plans were hurt, hit really hard. And the reason I bring up this article and I wanted to point this out is because it speaks to the hard times that we're falling on and the quote-unquote economic instability that we are currently in. I mean, we are in a recession, Right now, I know if you follow the news deeply, you'll say, oh, no, 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 we're not technically in a recession. The unemployment numbers don't match up. That's the definition or the revised definition that the White House gave. That, no, no, it's no longer if we're in two quarters of economic decline, which is the old definition for a recession, then 
if we have two quarters of GDP decline, negative growth in the GDP, that's the old definition. The White House says not anymore. We have to look at the fundamentals. We have to understand what's going on in the economy. And right now, our unemployment rate is very, very low. So obviously, we're not in a recession. Whether you agree or disagree, it's totally different. Either way, we're looking at hard economic times where we've had two quarters of negative GDP growth. So we don't necessarily have to take the White House at its word, and we don't have to necessarily use the old term for recession either, because for the most part, we do have low unemployment, and that's great. But inflation is still rampant. People are still paying more at the gas pump. They're still paying more at the grocery store. They are paying more for commodities that they need, that they use every single day. And the people that get the hardest by that are people who do not have stable income, a.k.a. retirees, people that rely on these pension plans in order to pay off their house, buy some groceries, maybe buy something nice for their grandchild or their kid every once in a while. So you can see how this is a problem and how these pension plans having all their money tied up in illiquid assets could be dangerous. There's one more quote from this article that I want to read you. Quote, private equity investments have outperformed stocks over the very long term, according to private equity index maintained by the data analytics from Burgess. That doesn't include venture capital. For the three decades ending in July 30th, 2021, the Burgess index yielded an annual return of 14% about three percentage points more than the S&P 500. However, the gap has all but disappeared as more investors have crowded into private equity over the last 10 years, and the yield was the same as the S&P 500, 14.8%. So like I mentioned before, over the long term, there's higher yield. But as more people have become aware of how accessible private equity is and how profitable it can be, those returns are starting to diminish a little bit. So was this a smart idea to go into private equity for these pension funds? I don't necessarily think so. But the reason that I wanted to have this article first is to speak to the state of our nation, speak to the economic state that we're in. Because even if these pension plans, which have been historically outperforming or at least performing as well as the market and have had state subsidies are suffering right now, then that speaks to what a fragile state we are in here in the United States. And something that can help us get out of that fragile state is our next article, or at least a proposal from uh, West Virginia Senator Manchin, Joe Manchin. Um, And one of his proposals is he's trying to make it easier to get through Um, approval for different energy projects, whether that be natural gas, whether it be uh, oil speculation on federal lands, or even green energy, make it easier to approve projects for wind farms or solar farms. And this comes in tandem with the Inflation Reduction Act. So as you may know, Joe Manchin pushed back very hard on the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, Actually, he pushed back really hard on Build Back Better. And eventually they had to break it up into multiple bills in order to get it passed. And one of those was the Inflation Reduction Act. 
And one of his stipulations when agreeing and voting for it was that we try to get a bill passed that makes it easier for companies that work with the federal government to get approval for energy projects. And this is a really big deal for Joe Manchin uh, because right now the Mountain Valley pipeline that would run through West Virginia is being stalled in these approval processes and it would help bring jobs to West Virginia. So this is why he's pushing on this issue very hard. And the you can kind of see a little bit of opposition from both sides. You have the opposition from the progressives and some liberals who don't like that it makes it easier to approve non-renewable energy, like I said earlier, fracking, natural gas, um, oil speculation. And Republicans are pushing back because they also don't like that it makes it easy to approve, but not for the non-renewable resources, for the renewable resources, because they don't want us to push too fast into a green economy. So for once, there is bipartisan opposition to a bill that is coming out of the Democratic side, rather than just the Republicans being mad at it or the Democrats being mad at something the Republicans are trying to pass. So you know what? I, I think of this as a unifying moment. You know, woohoo, America. We can finally be pissed off, pissed off at something together. Good for us. But the reason I think this is important is because right now the... Actually, I'll read a quote from the article that summarizes it very well. Uh, this one comes from Politico. Quote, In the Inflation Reduction Act, everything's based on a 10-year window, Manchin added. If it takes seven to eight years or longer to permit something, we're going to miss the window for having those investments come to fruition. And you miss that window then you're going to have that money stranded out there. Democrats' party-line climate and clean energy spending bill was enacted earlier this year after more than a year of negotiations that were halted more than once by Manchin. The ultimate legislation that took the form of the Inflation Reduction Act included long-term investments in traditional clean energy sources like wind and solar, through expanded tax credits, as well as new incentives for energy storage domestic manufacturing, clean hydrogen, and advanced nuclear. In this legislation, quote, the permitting bill would set limits on environmental reviews and require the president to identify energy projects of crucial national importance, end quote. So those actually were from two separate parts of the article, but I think that they kind of come together well. Um, the important thing that we notice here is we're trying to cut down on the amount of time that it takes for these things to get approved. And I think this is really important when it comes to America's position on the world stage. And this is what Manchin is kind of getting at here, which is other countries, their regulation process, their regulatory process for creating new energy projects is extremely quick. Certain countries like Russia and Europe, uh, other countries in Europe like Germany can get these projects through the approval process extremely quick, meaning that the turnover is faster than the United States. And that puts us at a strategic disadvantage. If all of a sudden Russia is being very harsh towards the European Union, oh wait, that's actually happening right now. Hmm. I wonder if we could produce more oil. Oh, wait, no. It's going to take 
seven to eight years to get those kind of projects approved. That's outrageous. That puts us at a great strategic disadvantage if it takes that long in order to get new projects approved. And also another important thing here is the focus on clean hydrogen and advanced nuclear. What, right now, we have been decommissioning, or at least California had at least planned to try to decommission some of its nuclear facilities. But now, with this bill, they're actually trying to produce more, which is a very clean, renewable energy. The only thing that's bad about it is the waste that comes out, the depleted uranium or plutonium, whatever different isotope we're using nowadays, that has to be stored underground. But besides that, it's a very clean, and it's probably one of the most efficient energy sources we have right now, besides developing, besides clean hydrogen, which we are actively developing right now as a fuel source for even even cars, which I thought was a very uh, interesting article I saw the other day. So I think this bill could be, this legislation could be very useful in helping America lower energy costs right now. Because as I mentioned from the last article, inflation's really hitting the American people hard. And though the Inflation Reduction Act increases spending, which will not lower inflation in the long run, at least this bill will take into account the approval process for energy projects. Because think about it. If an energy project has to go to a approval council and spend eight to seven years on doc- going through, making sure all the paperwork is accurate, making sure that the lawyers are paid the right amount, making sure that the executives are paid for their time when trying to appease the approval committee, that's a whole bunch of money and resources that's poured into these projects that's going to hit the consumer on the back end. Because, oh, wow, this project costs an extra $10 million to get approved. Well, we can just raise the prices of that electricity or the gas that we produce from this project by maybe $0.10 per kilowatt hour. So this could also help reduce the pressures on the consumer as well. So I think this is a step in the right direction. But I want to look at a different story that comes out of the Israeli... Uh, Times of Israel, and they're talking about the Iranian protests. And many people, or at least many people I've talked to, had no idea this has been going on. This is eight straight nights of protesting that are happening in Iran, and it's because of the death of a young woman. She was 22 years old, a Kurdish Iranian. Her name is Masha Amini, and she was in a coma for three days after being attacked by the mortality police. And then she passed away, unfortunately. Uh, I'll actually pull a quote straight from the Times of Israel here. Quote, Amini died on September 16th, three days after she was hospitalized following her arrest by the mortality police, the unit responsible for enforcing Iran's strict dress code for women. Activists said she suffered a blow to the head in custody, but that has been disputed by the Iranian authorities who have opened an investigation. After she was pronounced dead, angry protesters flared and spread to major cities, including Efsan, Hashad, Shaiz, Tabirs, as well as the native Kurdish providence, end quote. So this speaks to the the state of the world right now. And you may be wondering, why are you bringing bringing this up? You're kind of jumping all over the place. First, you start with pension plans. Then you start with energy. And 
if you notice, the through line here today is economic turmoil. So right now, Iran has been feeling the pressures of inflation as well. The population is paying very high prices for commodities, and the Iranian government can't bring it back underneath control. The leader, Ebram Razi's government, has been very slow to respond to inflation. So you can kind of see a connecting thread here that inflation is affecting everybody inside the United States as well as around the world. And these protests speak to what happens when the people are unsatisfied. And all it takes is a small moment, one match that can light the bonfire. And of course it is different. Iran is a less stable nation than the United States. I mean, the government is actually suppressing the, the internet by trying to limit people's internet access to stop the spreading of the protests online. And even the U.S. has said that it's going to re, uh, renege some of its restrictions in the sanctions that we've put on, as well as Elon Musk saying that he's going to try to make it easier for people in Iran to use Starlink so they can broadcast these messages out on social media and to the world and show us what's happening in Iran. And why this is important, if you look at China right now as well, with the mortgage crisis protests, if you notice, these economic times are very hard on people. And the first places that we're going to notice problems from inflation, or at least as a byproduct of these hard economic times, are in unstable nations. Right now, you see it in Iran. You see it in China. You're seeing it in Russia, where there are protests about the mobilization that Vladimir Putin just announced. And he passed a new law saying that if you uh, do not actively want to participate or you try to avoid the draft, essentially then you can spend up to 10 years in prison. So you can see in these nations that are less stable, this economic hardship that the world is going through has a destabilizing effect and is causing protests and it's causing not necessarily uprisings, but civil unrest. So my question here is, when does that, when does that reach America? I'm not saying it absolutely has to, and I'm not trying to take a negative or cynical point of view, but economic hard times make it extremely likely that people are dissatisfied with their government, and it makes it more likely that they're going to protest. Think about Occupy Wall Street. That happened after 2008, after people were, their livelihoods were destroyed after they realized that these banks were getting huge bailouts, the Wall Street banks were getting huge bailouts from the government, and the mom-and-pop store down the road where they used to work got closed. And people were very unhappy with this kind of corporate system that it works well with the government, that works in tandem. And that's why you saw a lot of dissatisfied, unhappy people protesting in New York at the Occupy Wall Street movement. So my question is, are we going to have the same thing going on here? Is this economic turmoil going to cause people to react in a negative way? And I think the last article I hear, have here from the Daily Beast, 
uh, called Some Election Officials Have the Same Worst Fears as of 2020. It, it could be the catalyst to something bigger. It could be a catalyst to protest. I've even heard the term civil war thrown out, thrown out there. And I'm not going to use it saying, oh, yes, we're definitely going to ha- see a civil war. I think that is inflammatory, and I think it is different news organizations trying to get clicks based off of it. I'm not saying that we're going to go into civil war, but there is an opportunity for great civil unrest. And the question that's raised here is, is this environment that we are in in America, the political partisanship, the looking at the other side as the enemy, is that likely to cause a problem after the midterm elections. And all I'm adding to it here is I think that the economic turmoil that we're in right now actually adds another layer on top of this partisanship and this political turmoil or this hard time that we're going through in America. So I'll pull a quote here from the Daily Beast. Quote, Now, because of this psychic environment that's much more anxious, much more willing to be suspicious, things could spiral out of control, and things that would be, in another time, not violent, not confrontational, could be. And that begins to create a sort of viral social media sensation or curiosity, or just two more. And those things can feed on themselves. I'm worried about that. And this is a author. Let me pull up his name so I don't get it wrong here. Um, this is one of the authors of a new book that is coming out called The Big Truth, Upholding Democracy and the Age of the Big Lie. And this is uh, Mr. Garrett. So he's speaking here about how he's concerned that this time we're living in of political divide on top of all the different things that have come out, the January 6th um, uprising, as some people like to call it, or the protests outside the Capitol, the quote-unquote big lie. All of this has been brewing underneath the surface. And in 2022, people don't get the result they want. They may be more likely to go out and protest and even lead to violent protests or you know, some of the more violent actions that we saw during the Black Lives Matter protests in the middle of 2020. So I think he has a point. Unfortunately, I think that we are in a very divisive time and people are so unwilling to acknowledge the other side that they can't even imagine a world where, oh, my side lost? oh, it has to be a stolen election, or there has to be something going on here. I actually, in one of my previous podcasts, I pulled up statistics saying that when one side loses, there is a negative uh, perception of the election, that they believe that something was not 100% legitimate going on. And that goes for both Democrats and Republicans. So I think there is a a legitimate concern, at least bringing this up and talking about it, that there could be some more protests, maybe not to the level of January 6th, but maybe, and they could could be violent. And I think another really, really important quote from this article comes from the other author, Miss Becker, quote, 
They know the courts reviewed all of this. They know how redundancies and transparencies go into every election process. And they see how losing candidates have leveraged the lack of knowledge on the part of the general public. They shouldn't. They can't be expected to know all of this stuff, says Becker. Quote, this is what these election officials do every day. And then to be attacked constantly? I mean, in some cases, literally threatened. Their physical well-being threatened. And while they're preparing for the next major election with over 100 million voters in unprecedented scrutiny, it's wearing on them. And to be perfectly honest, the Republicans are getting it in perhaps even worse than the Democrats. And here she's talking about the people that are meant to actually secure our elections. And I think it's a a good point. These people though they may not be the most honest people in the world. And I'm not saying that about all of them. I'm saying there could be some bad apples in there. A majority of these people believe in our democracy that are certifying the elections, that are going through and counting the votes. And they have been greatly, greatly uh, scrutinized over the last four years because Republicans saw them as one of the instruments as to why Donald Trump may have lost. Not all Republicans, but some Republicans who are very hell-bent on believing that Trump should have won that election have been scrutinizing these election workers. And I think that that's a problem. When we can't even trust our fellow Americans who actually believe in democracy, who want to ensure that our elections are free and safe, who spend their time out of their weeks, their days, for the week after the ballots are cast, making sure that we have a functioning democracy, when they're getting scrutinized to the level they have been, that says a lot about our country. It's very, very scary, and it really speaks to the state of the nation right now. So my question to you is, and this is the last thing I'll bring up about this negative stuff, and then we'll move on to our daily delight is will this be the match that lights the bonfire or could it be one that lights the lamp that will help us lead the way out of this darkness? And what I mean by that is, is this election going to be one that is remembered as a turning point towards a more violent, terrible time in America? Or is it a a possible time to reset and reevaluate what we're looking for in our government and reevaluate the election security and lead us towards a greener pasture, so to speak. I'll leave that one out there for you. Now let's get to our daily delight. This story uh, called Raccoon and Fawn, who both lost their moms, form a sweet relationship, is from My Modern Met. Carrie Long a person who operates a nonprofit, Texas Fawn and Friends, found a small raccoon who was cold, wet, and sad, who had lost his mother. So she, she took him in and named him Jasper. Now, you know, that, that's cute on its own. But she, just little guy Jasper also made a new friend on the farm. Quote, Hope was a fawn that I received in that had also lost her mother. Long explained to my modern Met. As time went on, Hope was released as she became old enough. She was happy to stay close by in the yard, and Jasper could play with her when he went outside. He loves playing with dogs, but 
he has a lot more fun with her. I guess because she's larger than the dogs and he's able to hold on to her. And here we have some cute videos of them hugging and Jasper holding on. And I, I didn't even know that raccoons and fawns could be friends. They seem like they're from totally, totally different worlds, totally different species. So if there's hope for these two little guys, there are hope for us Americans, for us Democrats, us Republicans. If they can come together, so can we. And I find it very, very promising. And like I said, there are some cute videos. Um, if you want to read any of the articles today, including this one, or see the videos, they will be linked in the description below, that like and subscribe button. And with that said, there's only one more thing to see, say. Stay safe. Don't die.